This is part two of the podcast on angina with Dr. Damien Kelly, consultant cardiologist at the Royal Derby Hospital UK. And in this second part of the podcast, we're going to cover treatment options for angina, including medical angioplasty and the role of cardiac surgery and coronary artery bypass grafting, and also the implications for a patient of having angina in terms of employment and driving and other things that might affect an impact on their lives. You diagnosed by one of those means yep. there's some impairment in the in the flow through the coronary arteries. Yep. Uh, and it is more than or equal to 70% of the cross-section area. Or you, you infer that it might be from the yep. non-invasive test, yeah. Right. And then what do you do? Can you so, work in better, right? Yeah. So you, the, the guidelines are... Um, perhaps a, quite rightly a little bit conservative. So the, the, there's a big trial, and I avoid mentioning too many trials, but Courage is a very famous trial, 2005, Bowdoin in, published in the Lancet. Um, uh, and it, it was it was a real, really shook the ground in America because I think it's fair to say in the States, compared to the UK, there was a higher instance of early recourse to angiography in patients with any hint of angina, which, was, which the evidence was not against, but that's what happened. And Courage randomised people with angina to either having immediate angiography and invasive therapy, including revascularization, or medical therapy. Mm. And the shock headline of Courage was, it's a very, we can talk about, I'm not going to drill into this trial, but at five years, there was no difference in mortality between those two approaches. The, 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 the slight subtext was that a third of people initially managed medically had to cross over to having some form of revascularization for symptom control. Mm. Um, but that really shook the, the, the landscape. And what that tells us is that the medical therapy is extremely good and extremely important. And the best way to stop having a heart attack is probably uh, to have statin therapy mm. and, and, and calm the plaques down and make them thicker on the surface and less likely to rupture, less likely to cause an mm. acute coronary syndrome. Having said that, um, you know, a proportion of people require revascularization and, and the guidelines suggest that you risk stratify, which is what you're mentioning. So if you come to rapid access checking clinic, you have a non-invasive test which suggests that you've got a significant functional limitation. You have two options. You can either say to the patient, based on the results of Courage and other studies, we can treat you with up to two anti-anginal pills and follow you up and see if you get better. And if your symptoms settle rapidly on one or two anti-anginal medications, it's appropriate to continue with medical therapy on the basis, and that means no, if they have no angina, yep. on the basis that the old Renfrew, Paisley, Rose data suggested if you have stable angina, your death or myocardial infarction per annum is roughly 2% per annum. Mm. Which be, when you tell patients that they jump for joy and click their heels because that's less than is intuitive, mm. 2% per annum. Mm. But if you don't settle, um, you need something doing. And if you have high risk features in your non-invasive test, lots of ischemia or an early positive exercise test, we would offer coronary angiography. And that in brief involves, it's an invasive test where um, it's luminology. It's basically putting contrast down the lumen of the arteries and mm. seeing if there are any... And you get it through narrows. the femoral artery or through the brachial artery? Through the radial artery nowadays. So the radial. brachial was the oh. first one yeah. when, when Sones accidentally invented the technique in the mid-60s. Yes. Um, so the brachial... So we then moved on to the femoral, which is the dominant way worldwide. In Europe, I think we're now around 70 80% radial for most invasive procedures. And it's not an end artery. You've got the palmar arch. So, yeah, so you do Allen's test. You do an first. Allen's test. Yeah. Absolutely. A positive Allen's test is normal. You can do it with a plethysmithograph with a saturation probe if you want to be slightly more scientific. And then um, you look at anaesthetic. There's a hemostatic sheath placed in the artery. You pass a catheter um, up to the coronary arteries. They're pre-shaped catheters. 
Nine times out of ten, as Judkins, who invented the major series of catheters, said, nine times out of ten, if you don't prevent it from happening, my catheter will engage the left coronary, and there's a bit more manipulation for the right coronary, and you inject dye, yeah. either by hand or with a machine with an external x-ray. The risk of diagnostic coronary angiography of death is one in 5,000, so it's really a very safe test. And death from? The procedure. Uh, so uh, is it an allergic reaction to the contrast, or is it... Damage, damaging damage the artery. When you, when you, yeah. So if you have you an precipitate an heart attack. Yeah, and yeah. It, and if you, um, it's very much related to the burden of disease. So I don't want anyone to get the idea it's a risky test. But if you have critical left mainstem disease, you can cause a problem when you mm. image it. And it's, it's, so you put it up, and the coronary arteries come off just after. So it, it, or from the catheter point of view, just before you get to the aortic valve. Yep. They're they're the 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 ostia of the of the coronary. Yeah, arteries. absolutely. So there's a little bit, from the arm particularly, there's a little bit of manipulation. You get the catheter into the left uh, coronary sinus mm. and a little bit of manipulation will engage. Yeah. So um, so you basically inject a number of different views which profiles the coronary arteries, usually take five or four, five, six pictures of the left coronary artery in different mm. views, two or three of the right coronary artery. And you may do a left ventriculogram where you mm. inject eye in the left ventricle. And at the end of that, you get a very good impression of, of the anatomy, but not the functional significance of those stenoses. Right. So if one sees a 90%, 95% stenosis, one can infer almost inevitably that's ischemic, and there's been lots of work done on that. If you see a 50 to 70% area stenosis in two views, um, the data suggests that you're not really sure about the functional significance mm. of that, and you may want to do something called a pressure wire test, which is a very clever little device that tells you exactly what the blood flow is in the artery. Mm. Before and, and after the stenosis. Correct, yeah. yeah. And then if, it's, if the blood flow, roughly speaking, is less than three quarters below what it is above the narrowing, then it's ischemic. Mm. Uh, and if you have symptoms, you should, you should treat that. Okay, okay. So, you, so you're selective about which of the stenoses that you treat. And then, so yeah. you, 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 we've got so far, so we've got dye in them, yeah. and we can see them. How are we to make them better? So um, there's been, as you know, in car- cardiovascular medicine, there's a huge amount of, um, well, there was a huge amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> and there's been a huge amount of data. You've got it all now, apparently. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, I wish. And the, uh, again, you know, you can make this long-winded or short. Essentially, treatment of ischemia is everything. Um, in stable angina, we talked about the vagaries of the difficulties of, disca- of defining stable versus unstable. There's never been a study which conclusively showed a mortality benefit for revascularization. Mm. Um, in unstable angina, non-STEMI, non-ST elevation MI and acute coronary syndrome, there definitely is a mortality benefit in revascularization. It's quite complex why that might be. Um, So say we have a patient with stable angina um, and he or she's investigated, you're primarily revascularizing them to relieve their symptoms. Mm. There's a suggestion there might be a mortality, tiny mortality benefit, but the problem is that 2% we talked about. It's Mm. very difficult to demonstrate a mortality Mm. benefit when the risk is actually not that high. Massive And what you do is either... Percutaneous coronary intervention, which is a slightly cumbersome way of describing coronary angioplasty and stenting and all the toys that go along with it. Um, so you've got a balloon that goes across the... balloon goes across the, So a guy called Andreas Gruntzig, who very sadly flew his plane into a hillside when he uh, moved to America, he invented it. the only thing they remember from this. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. That, that and uh, Heberden. So uh, he, in 1977, did the first angioplasty on, a, uh, on an Austrian bloke, and he made the balloons in, in his garage. And in the great history of... In the, in the days before uh, heavy ethics, um, he went around practising this. And then his first patient, I don't know if this is widely known, but it's a fact, his first patient died and the second patient he survived. He said he see you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then it took off from there. And there's a wonderful picture, I'm sorry about the same, there's a wonderful picture of the American College of Cardiology meeting with you know, all, the, all your boards and the abstracts. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of abstracts about the use of beta blockers and pigs or whatever. 
And then there's Andrix Gunzig with his thing that's going to revolutionise and be a multi-billion dollar business and there's nobody looking at his poster. So he invented this technique. <clears throat> it rolled out and it still hasn't really changed a great deal. The equipment's a lot easier to use, but it's a balloon on a wire. Yeah. You squish the arthromatism material. Arthroma, by the way, is from the Greek for porridge. Yeah. That's what it looks like. So it's still squishy. It's still squishy. Like and it tears the intima. So the intima is almost inevitably torn by the balloon. Uh, prior to the advent of stents, which look like a brandy snap, I think it's yes. cultural references fail yeah. me, but it's a metal mesh. A bit, a bit of rolled up chicken wire. Correct. Cobalt chromium nowadays, usually. That has two uses. It stops immediate recall of the artery. Sometimes the artery would clamp back down and shut. Mm. Um, and it also... Um, because it's a stable scaffold to keep the artery open, essentially. Mm. But the ta- you can sometimes get an, an occlusive intimal tear or flap, which will block it off, and the stent prevents that from happening mm. as well. So, so you make a little tear, the blood comes down it, and then gets underneath the flap. And it can raise the flap and push it Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and in the days of balloon angioplasty alone, up until the mid-late 80s, um, the acute vessel closure rate was 15%. So mm. when you did an angioplasty, there was a 1 in 7 chance for needing emergency bypass surgery. Mm. Mm. So the early days of angioplasty, there was a surgeon in the room, and they had a theatre ready. It was mm. So nowadays, it's a routine procedure. There were 110, 120,000 uh, PCIs in the UK last year with a success rate of 98%, uh, a mortality for, for stable elective angioplasty of 0.1% slightly higher in the in the acute coronary syndromes. So it's a very, very entrenched technique. Yeah. Um, coronary bypass surgery, you know, I'm a cardiologist, the old joke is that cardiologists are physicians who want to be surgeons. And there's great a great rival between cardiologists but it, and surgeons, but cabbage, coronary bypass graft surgery, is a ph- phenomenally successful and excellent mm-hmm. uh, operative technique. And we require it, and we'll always, I think, require it, because there are some lesion subsets that are just not amenable to right. putting metal tubes in them. So the indications for coronary artery bypass grafting, then, yeah. is that um, it's you can't stent it or, or dilate it, or you have a complication at the time. Yeah, so in case there are any cardiologists listening to this, I better just very briefly make this accurate. Uh, there were studies in the 80s comparing medical therapy and bypass yeah. surgery. They haven't really been redone, and who what we think is of a surgical cabbage disease dates from those studies. Yeah. But essentially, if you have left main stem disease affecting the distal bifurcation of the left main, or you have three-vessel disease and you're diabetic, it gets to a situation where the re-stenosis rate for a single stent, which is with a drug-eluting stent, we didn't really touch on that, but... With the modern, the drug-eluting means it releases the drug slowly. Yeah, it releases a serolimus analogue, which is rapamycin from a fungus in Rapa Nui, Easter Island, by the way. So it's a cell toxin it inhibits... Yeah. Yeah, so it inhibits one of the cell phases. It's a, it's a anti-cancer medicine, yeah. and it prevents exuberant keloid scar formation within when you get balloon injury, which can re-narrow the stent. So you, you have a small amount of serolimus analog on the stent, um, and the, the studies basically suggest that with a drug-eluting stent, you've got a, nowadays depending on how, what the lesion is between a, a two to five percent re-narrowing risk in that stent. Yeah. The more complex an area you're trying to squidge the stent into, the more stents you have, the more the worse your diabetes, um, the higher resnosis rate. So if you're putting in a you know a great amount of stents, half a dozen, six, eight stents, total length of 150 millimeters in multiple vessels, and you're diabetic, you're probably better off having a bypass operation. Over the horizon of five to ten years, you'll have less chance of needing other work done. And there's many studies, the Syntax series being the main one, which have defined quite accurately an anatomical score. Worse anatomy, you should have bypass surgery, particularly if you're diabetic. Mm. Okay. And your cabbage will 
see you for about 10 years or thereabouts? Uh, that's what you used to say. That's yeah. what you used to say. It's highly variable. I think with modern statin therapy, modern surgical techniques, um, probably the average vein graft survival is a bit less than that, but mm. then often vein graft loss is asymptomatic. Yeah. The one thing I will say that's relevant for medical students is the, the left internal mammary artery is a straight artery, yeah. and it's incredibly durable. Yeah. So the lemur... The internal mammary is preferred to the vein graft. Correct. Yeah. And, and since the advent of putting a lemur on your left anterior descending artery, um, that has been the, 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 the gold standard survival mm. graft. Mm. And really, that's an excellent durable graft. So what, what so cabbage used to be the, the only option, yep. and then the 80s come along and all these things. So what proportion of your patients will have angioplasty or stent, and what proportion will have coronary bypass surgery? So there's about seven angioplasties for every person who's sent for bypass surgery. Right, okay. So it's um, still not infrequent then? It's not infrequent, yeah. seven or eight. And uh, of people who present with non-ST elevation MI and are eligible for invasive investigation, we probably end up proceeding and doing a, an, a, a revascularization procedure on probably 75, 80% of them. Right, right, okay. And then, so we've treated it now, but patients have angina, what's the implication for their lifestyle and what they can do? So um, the one thing I will just briefly mention is that there's no survival benefit for stable angina. For unstable angina, there's about 20% reduction in the risk of death of myocardial infarction a year. That's why we do it. Mm. So the implications on, on lifestyle is a very good question. If, if you're, It depends on your employment, for one thing. So if you have a heavy manual job, um, we try to say to people or, or emphasise the fact that angina in itself doesn't damage the heart. And that's a very important thing. So there's a central role of cardiac rehabilitation nurses. Mm. Um, they, and, and one of the messages is angina in itself isn't harmful. It may be a warning symptom to slow down, mm. but exercising or working up to the point where you're breathless is perfectly permissible. Clearly, if you have angina, one, the Heberden talk again, coming back to this ancient history, the final line of that was that the person with angina, there is no treatment and other than exercise. Um, and you should live your life in quiet waters. That was the, the, and I think there's an, still an element of truth in that. I think if you're a, if you work in a foundry uh, and you've got significant angina, that's probably not the job for you mm. anymore. And we spend some time with employers trying to support that. There's no, but one should try and work. And for psychological reasons and every other reason, we try returning to occupation. Suitable yeah. occupation is very important. Driving, um, there's no great implication for driving uh, for stable angina. Again, if driving a car provokes angina, then that's also not the, the thing you should be doing. Mm. That's very unusual. Um, it's different from myocardial infarction, where for most, in most instances, there's a four-week DVLA restriction on driving in the United Kingdom. Mm. For elective angioplasty and stenting, it's one week off driving. Mm. So it's less restrictive than you might imagine. Mm. Different for occupational drivers. So for HGB drivers, and a bit complex to go into now, there's quite strict criteria. Mm. You would essentially lose your licence and have to prove that you mm. can get it back. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much. That's. Uh, I mean, it's obviously very complex. Uh, yeah. All of that. But so we, we we talked about the definition and the, you know the, the kind of things you can lump together. The definition that's yeah. between stable and, and unstable, uh, the risk factors, and some of the treatments. Uh, one of the things we we, we didn't cover. You, you said about medical treatment. Yeah. Just just broadly, what kind yeah. of drugs would you give? That's very important. So. Um, in the absence of allergy or contraindication, um, aspirin yeah. with a diagnosis of any, any vascular what disease. What kind of dose? 70, well, in the UK, it's 75 milligrams a yeah. day, and that inhibits your platelets for five days. 
There is, interestingly, I'll briefly say from the Capri trial, which is now quite old um, evidence, that clopidogrel is just a better drug, mm. causes less GI problems. And, and that's another ant- antiplatelet. It's another antiplatelet agent. But in the UK, we still use aspirin, at first line. Um, and then most patients will have a, a rate-limiting medication, so either a beta blocker if they can tolerate it, and if they have significant asthma, a rate-limiting calcium antagonist, such as uh, diltiazem or mm. verapamil. Um, and then the third tablet we would use in the second antianginal tablet would then be something like a nitrate, mm. a, a venodilator, so isozorbide mononitrate, mm. either short or sustained release, or nicarandal. Mm. And as I was saying, NICE suggests once and you... What, what's the mechanism of action, nicarandal? It's a potassium channel opener. Yeah. So it's um, similar to... Similar to mode of action in reducing preload. Um, it has a specific action on... Uh, Preconditioning, in other words, nicarandal seems to make the heart more tolerant to ischemia. Mm. Um, and from the Iona trial, it actually had an effect on mortality. So it's surprising in some senses nicarandal is not used more widely, causes anorectal ulceration. Ulceration any mucocutaneous junction. Any mucocutaneous junction. And several cases. Yes. A, good, a gift that keeps on giving nicarandal. Worth knowing, isn't it? And, and then, so once you've had two drugs and you've still got angina, you should be investigated for a revascularization, essentially. Right. Okay. And then we, we talked about uh, angioplasty and stenting, coronary artery bypass grafting and, yeah. and the, the implications on people's lives. So, Damien, what, what, what was the take-home message uh, about angina for students? Can you just sum it up in a couple of sentences? Yeah, of course. So the take-home message would be that angina is not straightforward to diagnose. One has to have an index of suspicion. There's a variety of characters and one shouldn't get too hung up on the character of the symptom. It's the onset and periodicity that are the hallmark. As a group, you should try and differentiate stable from unstable symptoms. And if you have any doubts um, about the nature of the symptoms and whether they might be unstable, uh, seek early and urgent medical advice. Well, Damien Kelly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to another podcast brought to you by School of Surgery. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook at School of Surgery, on iTunes, on Podomatic at schoolofsurgery.podomatic.com, And finally, by searching School of Surgery on YouTube. Thank you very much and see you next time.